You know my title, no more excuses, read your Old Testament. I, I do want to give you a little word of explanation uh, about my motivation. Uh, one, at, at Bible.org, I'm writing introductions to hopefully every book of the Bible. Now, I have to tell you that, that if you were to punish me, it wouldn't be to stick me in a corner with a dunce cap on my head. It would put me in a library and make me read the introductions to the books of the Bible. They're horrible. Are they not? Are they not? You know, you end up saying, well, you get internal evidence, external evidence, theories about this, theories about that. And, and you're saying, oh, man, I think I'll just pass on this stuff. So what I'm doing is I'm, I'm doing introductions that basically and shortly say, here's why you need to read this book. And here's how you need to read this book. And, and just get people to the book, for goodness sakes. Sometimes we take, well, we do every time, we take longer in our introductions to a book of the Bible than the author does to his own book. I remember I read one commentary, and it was such a pleasure. He said, I'm not going to write an introduction. The author already did that, so let's just get with it. I love that. So in the process of that, I'm obviously thinking my way through not only all each of the books individually, but all of the books together. And uh, how do you how do you read the Old Testament? Why do you read the Old Testament? That's really important stuff. In uh, in theology, the relationship between the Old and the New Testament is a is a fairly critical factor. It really has a lot to do with your hermeneutics, the way in which you interpret Scripture. So, dispensationalism tends to to not altogether, but it tends to to make the two distinct. And uh, covenant theology tends to make the two uh, so unified that they forget the distinctions. And, and so actually, I think both of them miss a little bit of the point of saying there is unity and diversity in those two, but they are directly and importantly related. Third reason. I hope many of you have committed and already started to reading through the Bible this year. If you did, you're in the Old Testament, folks. And I think some of you have already started to cheat. You're either the world's greatest speed readers, and you're just whipping through those pages like we did when you were in college and you had to read so many pages. Whew, they're just sailing by. That's not what you need to do. You need to take the Old Testament seriously. And so start now. Fourth. There is a, a growing trend amongst evangelicals, not to mention the others, of somehow seeking to drive a wedge between the Old and New Testaments and actually the New Testament part divorcing the Old Testament part. One uh, very well-known, very popular uh, preacher uh, in recent days basically made an effort to so separate the two. He says, let's just start at the resurrection and forget all that old stuff back there. Well, obviously he got whipped on the internet and, and whatever. But people are, are trying, I think, to distance, distance themselves from the Old Testament because there are some things about it that are either hard to understand or hard to accept. We'll talk about that a little bit more. My greatest fear is this. What I see happening in evangelicalism in relationship to the Old Testament is also happening with the New. I hear the same kinds of arguments getting raised. Well, that was long ago, and that was far away, and that was a different culture than ours. And all of a sudden, these things that our New Testament says to us, they're, well, they're just maybe not for us. They're for them. And frankly, I don't know where that path leads. It's a scary one. So let's just nip it in the bud while we all start reading through our Bibles again. So let's talk about some reasons that people give. What are, I, I was generous. Excuses that people give for uh, not reading the Old Testament. They would say, well, this is the New Covenant days. This is the age of grace. That's the age of the law. So we're in a new dispensation. That is, that's old. That's out. That's passe. Uh, well, I have a few things to say about that. 
One is, if you read your New Testament carefully, you will see that Old Testament saints, like New Testament saints, were saved by faith apart from works. Classic case, Romans chapter 4. And and there he says, well, if people... Chapter 3. The law couldn't save you. Only Christ can save you. You are saved by faith. There's no basis for boasting. And then the question is, well, what about those Old Testament saints? And and uh, Paul says, well, actually, A, Abraham was declared righteous before the law of Moses was given. There was no law to keep. And he was saved by faith. And Abraham believed in God and it was reckoned to him for faith. Then you go to Hebrews 11 and you get some more, right? All these, 11, 13 and following, all these died in faith, not having received the promise. It wasn't an earthly city or they would have gone back to it. It was a heavenly city. And then what really caps it off is the list of some of those people who were saved by faith. Rahab, Samson, and, and you're saying, whoa, I would, if I meet those guys in heaven, they better have a name tag, because I won't believe they're there. <laughs> Old Testament saints were saved by faith. It was not salvation by works in the Old Testament. It was salvation by faith. The Old Testament law was given to prove to men they could not be saved by works, and they had to have a savior and a salvation that God himself provided. The New Testament consistently condemns legalism, but it affirms and commends the law. We need to be really careful, and I think the problem here is our definitions. Sometimes the word law is used as a synonym for legalism, for works. Other times it is used for the Old Testament law, for in effect the Old Testament and if we confuse those two, we're in a lot of trouble. And, and so what we tend to do, I think, those who want to reject the Old Testament, what we end up doing is saying, well, the law, we're not under law. And so all the Old Testament law goes out the window. But that's not what it's saying at all. The law is used there in the sense of legalism. Legalism is a very interesting thing. Legalism seeks, uh, seeks to set up a system of rules that you can keep so you can prove you're saved. It really doesn't trust God. It locks God in. If I do this, 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 and this, God's got to do that. Well, that's certainly not faith. But legalism goes beyond the law. Legalism says there needs to be a rule for every situation and circumstance in life. There's got to be a rule for it. And you know, if you go into the Jewish uh, rule system, you know that they had a lot of rules and regulations, as they do today, uh, that pertain to things that the Scripture does not give us. They, that's their extension of the law to those particulars. The problem is they have to have a particular rule for every circumstance, and that's just not possible. And when they don't have a, a biblical command to hang their hat on, then what they do is they create one and they make it a part of their tradition. So remember in in Mark chapter 7, our Lord Jesus says, you actually hold your traditions in higher esteem than you do the law itself. The law says, honor your father and your mother. Your tradition says, oh, this is devoted to God. Sorry, mom and pop, can't take care of you. This is devoted to God. I'm going to be witnessing on my cruiser as I throw tracks out when I'm fishing. That's placing tradition above the law itself. That's legalism. Law is saying, as Romans 3 says, you cannot keep enough works to be good enough to be commended by God. You've got to be saved some other way than your efforts. That's legalism. I'm sorry, that's law. That's grace. And legalism is saying you've got to work yourself to death to get there. All right, let's talk about some other reasons why we uh, we don't like to read the Old Testament. Here's the a big one in our culture today, uh, and I'm speaking now of the Old Testament. The Old Testament tells us about things that make us uncomfortable and that send unbelievers into a tizzy fit. 
Let's just give you a a few. Uh, Multiple wives and concubines uh, of saints. Look at David. Look at Solomon. Look at all those wives. You're saying, what? What's going on here? Or, you know, the the case of Lot, my my friend. I'm sure I'm going to sit between Lot and Jonah when I get to heaven. And I've got a lot of apologies to make, but I'm going to pound on them right now. Here's Lot, who says... To, to, you know, to these the, uh, people in, in, in Sodom, oh, please don't hurt my stranger guests that I've never met before in my life. Take my virgin daughters instead. I'd like to strangle that guy. <laughs> I mean, is, the, is that virtuous? Is this something to commend? I don't think so. Uh, and then, of course, there's Abraham who says, honey, you're awful good looking. And I think that it's easier to marry a widow than it is to marry a married lady. So uh, why does Jesus tell him you're my sister? I've told you this before. That's not just Egypt, Exodus chapter 12. And it's not just uh, with uh, Abimelech in Exodus 20. When Abraham gets called on the carpet, he says, oh, that's our foreign policy. That's what we do everywhere we go that's not in the land. Because I had this feeling that God couldn't keep us other than just in this holy place. Bad dudes. The Levite and Judges who <laughs> cuts his wife and his concubine up into 12 pieces. Why am I laughing? He cuts his concubine up into 12 pieces, right? Sends her about all the thing. I've told you the story before, but when I preached this years ago, I had to ask three guys to read the scripture before one guy would do it because the other two said, no thanks. The third guy gets up on Sunday morning to read the scriptures and says, I know normally we read the scriptures and then pray. If you don't mind, I'd like to pray first. <laughs> I mean, those are, those are nasty passages for Christians, are they not? Now, then there's the ones that give the unbelievers uh, difficulties. The whole gender role, male and female, the, the, the declaration of unnatural sex being a sin, and a perversion. Uh, there's slavery that really gives some pause for thought and the annihilation of whole cities. This actually, you know, somebody, you saw me writing down here, and, and I admit, thoughts come to my mind at all kinds of times. But I've been thinking about this annihilation thing, which, which sounds really severe, does it not? <laughs> no, not so much. Okay, for some people, it's 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 really severe. And think about this. One is when you go to the Old Testament. You don't have to wait for the New. When you go to the Old Testament, in Exodus 34, God says that His essential nature and His preference is to show grace and to forgive sins. Yes, He's got to punish iniquity, but His preference is to forgive sins. There are the Old Testament uh, texts that tell us that God does not take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Annihilation is not God's jolly thing to do. The other thing is, God isn't quick to do it. Genesis chapter 15, when God is telling Abram that he's going to go down to a foreign land and he's going to be there 400 years and then come back and possess the land, he says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. 400 years of delay. How many years of delay did God give Israel before he brought their judgment upon them? And God throws the book of Jonah in just for good measure. Because the book of Jonah is saying, here is a people who hates Israel who is going to bring about their their annihilation and destruction, but God sends a prophet to save them. So when you look at annihilation in those terms, it, it looks a little different. But there's one more piece, and that's what came to me a little bit ago. It's the Old Testament and those ugly texts that have to do with annihilation, which gives substance to the New Testament teaching about hell. Why do people hate annihilation so much, unbelievers? Because they don't want to believe payday is coming. They don't want to believe that their sin is so great that that's what they and their civilization deserves. 
And so sure you're going to protest the annihilation of the Old Testament because it frankly is just a foreshadow of the big one that is yet to come. And because God kept his word in the Old Testament, you better believe he'll keep his word in what he says in the New. You and I have been in the the grocery store and you've seen a misbehaving child and mom or pop says, now, if you you don't stop that, I'm going to, you know, and they go on with this list of all the terrible things they're going to do. They never do it. You think it takes that kid a millisecond to figure out keeping right on with it because he's not going to follow through. God will. One last point. God has followed through. The Lord Jesus took on himself all of the sins of the world and the judgment that it required. God is not sitting back passively wiping people out. He has given his son for sinners to be saved. And if sinners shake their fist in the face of Jesus Christ and of the Father who sent him, annihilation is due them. Remember that text in in Revelation 16? talks about the destruction of the wicked there, and it ends up with this statement. They deserve it. That's what the Bible says. So let's quit making huge apologies for things we see in the Old Testament because they may be the things that give substance to what we really need to pay attention to. Oh, one more thing. Uh, Let's look at slavery for just a second. A couple of things should be said, I think, about slavery. Does the Old Testament set out to rid the world of slavery? No. Did Jesus set out to rid the world of slavery? No. Slavery, and and frankly, all these terrible things that are going on around us, are evidence that God's condemnation of sin is validated. These things are evidence of of the cruelty and the fallenness of man. Slavery isn't upheld as the great ideal for all mankind. Think of, I was thinking about the text in Mark chapter 1 where uh, Jesus uh, ends up at the house of, of Simon Peter, heals Peter's mother-in-law. You remember when the word gets out, everybody in town and in the surrounding areas is gathering and he heals all of the ones that are there in the evening and then in the morning, disciples wake up and Jesus is gone and he's gone out to pray. And, and Peter says to the Lord, hey, Lord, the... Uh, the crowds are there. They're waiting for healing. And Jesus said, no, I came to preach the gospel. So let's get moving on. Is he untouched by the suffering of others? No. It says he does things out of his compassion for them. But what you discover is if healing becomes his prominent theme, then frankly, he won't be preaching much gospel. And that's one of the things that I've observed in terms of ministries that seek to meet the needs of of people who are in need. My theory, for what it's worth, is you can't really minister to people who have needs without addressing those needs in some way. You can't just shake them off and say, "Don't, don't worry about dinner, let me tell you the gospel. You know the Skid Row admissions how it goes. They say, you listen to the sermon, then you get dinner. And if you go along when you're preaching that dinner, you would think you're in a tuberculosis asylum. Those guys are hacking and coughing, and the message is, hey, buddy, I paid my dues, give me dinner. But at least there was those two elements. But the danger is you can get so absorbed in the meeting of those needs that your priority is lost. And that's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. My priority is preaching. And so we have to be careful that we're not just out trying to make the world a lovely place when the only way that's going to happen is when Jesus comes. We do what we can, but we can't do it all. But given the fact that there was slavery in those days, I would say the Old Testament sets God apart in a way that makes it clear that he has compassion on slaves. Listen to these verses. In Deuteronomy 23, 15 and 16, 
You shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall live with you in your midst in the place which he shall choose in one of your towns where it pleases him. Well, that seems to me like God has given the the, uh, the slaves in the Old Testament sanctuary. Let's not talk about sanctuary cities right now, folks. But there is a sense in which Israel was a was a sanctuary nation. That says something about what he thought of slavery. But listen to this. This is Leviticus uh, chapter 19, verses 33 and 34. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Is God oblivious to the suffering of slaves and aliens? No. He makes them a priority. But that's not his primary focus. And that's what we need, I think, to keep in mind. All right, here's uh, the third one. And frankly, I think... It's really the most telling. The Old Testament is boring. Or as a friend of mine would say, boring. <laughs> you know, they just think, it's just, I mean, what does this have to do with me? When you read through those Old Testament books, here's what troubles me about that. Is the Constitution of the United States, is that the most fascinating? you read that every night before you go to bed? Bill of Rights, Declaration of Independence. Ask a Supreme Court justice. Is the, is the Constitution of the United States boring to you? Uh, have a relative die and they're going to read the well. Is that boring to you? I'll bet it isn't if your relative was rich. <laughs> no, just because things that are important aren't always the kinds of things you read for entertainment. But you have to work at them to find out really what that's all about. But here's what I'm getting to. I think there is a self-serving element in our reading of the Bible that we don't care how the original readers lived. We don't care how that text impacted their lives. We just care about us. And so all we want to do is have texts that make us feel good and feel happy and, and, and are really funny and entertaining. So we'll go through the Samson stories, you know, and the Jonah and the great fish stories. Okay, we can do that. We'll read those to our kids. I get to Leviticus. Mm, that's not so much. Some of you are going to be tempted very soon if you're reading your way through the Old Testament. Some good reasons to read the Old Testament. Think of the law of proportion. I, I took a, one of the Bibles I had on my desk, and I just looked at the pages from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Malachi. And then I took the number of pages from Matthew chapter 1 to the end of Revelation. 70% of your Bible is Old Testament. Now, okay, 69.9, you know, depending on what it is, but 70% ballpark of your Bible is Old Testament. Did God waste his time in writing those things? Should God have made the, the Old Testament 30% and the New Testament 70%? I was thinking about this too. When you look at the number of years that, that is in captured in the New Testament, what do you got? 90 years? 100 years? Okay, I'll give it to you. You got thousands of years of history contained in the Old Testament. Do we just blow all that off as though it's irrelevant? We better look at the proportions. Note how often the New Testament quotes the Old. Now, I went out to the Internet to look at this and uh, found some interesting stuff, some of which I had in my hands. But one uh, writer says that Jesus quoted from 27 Old Testament books. I guess it was important to him. The uh, the Lord Jesus cited the Old Testament 78 times, and out of those, the Pentateuch 26 times. Here's the interesting thing. I checked about a little bit. 
And they, they said, Jesus quoted from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. They skipped numbers. And I said to myself, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, numbers, numbers. Kadesh Barnea, so the generation dies off, second generation comes and possesses the land. Balaam, whose star we talked about last week, right? And the brazen serpent. Hey, Jesus said in John chapter 3 that just like the brazen serpent was lifted up by Moses, he has to be lifted up. Is that not citing the book of Numbers? So I added Numbers in for them. And you'll find, if you talk about illusions, you'll find... You wonder sometimes if Paul didn't have his devotions in the text, the shaping his imagery and his language. It's so much a part of him, he just can't shake it loose, or any other author. Oh, what I was going to say to you is, they. one of the fellows on the internet said, I would tell you more, but I'm afraid I'd violate copyright laws of the ESV study Bible. Well, I bought one of those $100 babies, and I gave it to somebody in need, but I didn't give away the electronic rights because I forgot about them. So I looked out of my computer. Lo and behold, there it was again. It's all there on my computer. And they have a chart which lists all of the citations of the Old Testament in the New. And it is multi-paged. My point is simply this. If it was that important to the authors of the New Testament... Maybe it ought to be important to us. Third, there is a, a beauty and a grandeur to the law that I think we often forget. So let me read you this text in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just that the Lord my God commanded me that you should do this in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them. For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today. Deuteronomy chapter 4. What's he saying? He's saying the law is a beautiful thing. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 119? Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation day and night. He doesn't say, yuck, the law again in my reading plan. He meditates on the law because he sees God and his character there. Well, we could go on and on. The inspiration and authority of the Old Testament, 2 Timothy 3, uh, many instances in the Old Testament as well. The Old Testament is foundational to the coming of Christ and to the gospel. Genesis 3.15, mankind is going to be saved through the seed of the woman. Genesis chapter 12, through the seed of Abraham, through the patriarchs, through the seed of David, Right? Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it's going to be born in Bethlehem. All of these things point to Jesus. Dr. Walkie said years ago when I had him for a teacher, whenever I read the Old Testament, I pray and I say, Lord, help me see Jesus. You ought to be praying that when you read your Old Testament. He's there. Remember Luke 24, Road to Emmaus? Jesus starts with Moses and the prophets. And he says, this all points to me. And the stuff that we now see as pointing to Jesus, when we get to heaven, folks, our eyeballs are going to pop out of their sockets because we're going to find Jesus cropping up in places we didn't think he was. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Other passages that are that somehow caught us off guard. All right. I'm going to leave it at that because I've got to tell you a few other things about how to read the Old Testament. Number one, because the natural man does not perceive and grasp the things of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God has to reveal them to us. We have an interpreter for us that communicates God's truth, and we need to listen to him 
We need to ask him. Remember the psalmist says, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things out of your law. There are beautiful things. Number two, ask, where am I? <laughs> I, I one of the things I've said I want to do in, in my work in the Bible is, is to have a you are here section. You know, when you go into an off, a, a complex of, of a shopping center and whatever, and you're wandering around, you don't know it, you're not familiar with it, and it says, you are here. It's got a little arrow, and you say, oh, that's where I am. You have to ask yourself that in the Old Testament. You have to say, for example, was this before the kingdom divided? Was it before uh, Solomon's reign ended, or was it after? If it was after, is it the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom? Is this before the exile or after the exile? Those things are important to know, and it helps you to really wrap your arms and your mind around the text that you're dealing with. Where am I in the history of the Old Testament? Put yourself in the sandals of the people to whom it was written. Now, my friend Hugh Blevins used to say years ago, I never forgot it, submission is the willingness to see things from the other person's point of view. And my concern is, I don't think we're very submissive when we come to the Scriptures. We come to the Scriptures from our culture, from our setting and our environment, and then we say, well, that's so strange. Can you imagine missionaries going to some country in Africa saying, I don't care about their culture, their tradition, whatever else. I just I just want more of like me. That's all self-oriented. We have to place ourselves in a spot where we say, what was this to them? How important was this to them at their point in life, in history? It, genealogies. We say, oh, genealogies. Ugh. Do you know that when Israel went back, the Jews went back into the promised land, they could not assume priestly roles if they couldn't prove their gene- genealogy, friends. And by the way, even our culture is getting into genealogies. So try to put ourselves in the place of others. Here's one that you may want to think about. You may want to disagree with me, but here it is. Focus on the things that are clearly there. Focus on the things that are clearly there. Jesus has a lot to say about straining gnats and swallowing camels. One of the problems with theological education is it says to the student, when you're writing your master's thesis or your doctoral dissertation, you have to write on something no one has ever written on before. Nat time. It's got to be. It's got to be, doesn't it? If nobody ever wrote about it, thought about it before, it's got to be in the Thule's. And what I see in the evangelical scholarly world, my friends, not to mention outside of it, I see scholarship going to outside external sources. And in effect, what they're saying is, I know you've always understood the text this way. And for thousands of years, everybody's understood it this way, but... I just found a text in some ancient library. And what you thought the Bible clearly taught, it doesn't. That's going on a lot, folks. A lot. I'm going to be kind and not mention names, but it's going on nearby. And we've got to watch out, I think, for that. Okay. Oh, I didn't give you the text. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of the law. Do you think God did not tell us all we need to know? Do you think what we need to know is from some other source? It may illustrate, but i got to tell you, I'm not looking for revelation from God other than in his word. And if it isn't in his word, then I have to say to myself, maybe it's just not that important. Maybe I better focus on the things that are right in front of me. And I would say the things that are plainly stated in front of me. Don't let somebody tell you that what the Bible plainly says, it doesn't plainly mean because of complexity. I don't buy it. All right. Here's one I got from Francis Chan. Ask yourself, what don't I like about this text? 
he was speaking, you know, he just, he just said he and his family are going to be missionaries to Asia. He was speaking to the chapel at Azusa Pacific to young students, and, and he basically said, I'm really concerned that you students are letting your culture teach you more about truth than you are your Bibles. And then he throws this in, and, and, and by the way, and he says, and there are scholars who will line up behind you to tell you that's true. Then he says, what have you read lately in your Bible that you don't like? And he says, that is probably the truth. Do you think that the Bible is like a candy store that you just go and you pick all these little sweets and treats out and that God's given us a batch of happy texts and there isn't anything else? We really need to be careful, I think, about letting expectations for good things in our definition, like Asaph in Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel. Boy, does he have a definition for God that God doesn't have. God says, the nearness of God is my good through Asaph. What don't you like? So, Rather than to find a thousand ways to prove that what you don't like isn't there, why not give some thought to why you don't like it? I think that might help you. And by the way, there's lots of stuff in the Old Testament you won't like. I guarantee it. You won't be disappointed. I've already said, look for Jesus. I want to say, watch for themes. As you read through the Old Testament, watch for themes The two biggest themes are creation and the exodus. But I was looking, uh, and that's not just, and so what God says is this. You saw what I did in the first creation. Now, I'm going to turn this on its head. I'm going to make a new creation. He goes to the exodus and he says, uh, I've got a new exodus. Remember that Jesus was talking about in the transfiguration? I've got a new exodus that's going to come about. At one point, I made a desert path through the midst of the sea. Now I'm going to make a sea in the midst of the desert. He uses that language. So when you get to Acts chapter 4, and Peter and John have been whooped on by the, by the adversaries to the gospel, the first thing they say when they get back and they're gathered to the church is, Oh God, creator of the heavens and the earth. And then they quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? What are they saying? They're saying the God who is big enough to speak the world into place and to rule over the nations and laugh at opposition. He's the God who is in control of us and this little peewee group of guys who threaten to kill us if we preach the gospel. Creation is a huge theme. And so you'll find in the language of the prophets that, that just creation and the exodus, it, it's the, the imagery and the language is there. Look for those themes. They're all over the place. Oh, what is the unique contribution of this book? My contention is every book in the Bible has its own unique contribution. And the key to understanding that book is to say, what's unique about it? What's unique? I'm going to just pick out of the back of my head. Joshua is the one book. I'm thinking of this now in the context of Deuteronomy 28 through 31. Larry and Virginia Aubrey would be saying amen right now. But, you know, all, the, the blessings part is this long. Cursing part is this long in, in Deuteronomy 28 and following. So... Joshua is an illustration and a manifestation of the blessing part. Judges is a manifestation of the cursing part. And friends, they're two joined generations. It was when the generation of Joshua passed away and the generations of the judges came up that these things happened. That says to us, wow, they can go that far, that fast, downhill, right? So what's the unique contribution? When you look at the book of Esther, Dr. Walke was the guy who really said it first for me, but he basically said this. Esther is the book that describes 
unbelieving, disobedient Israel staying in the land rather than returning to the promised land. Once you get that in your head, you say, okay, now I've got to read this book in the light of where they are. So don't try to make a pious bunch of saints out of those who are often the heroes and the heroines of Esther. That's not, that's not what the context would tell us. Look for the pearls in every book. You know, the parable about the pearls and you, you dig down, you find it and you sell everything you get to get it. Every book has pearls. You may have to dig for them, but they're there. So, I'm just going to walk you through the Pentateuch. So in Genesis, what do you got? Genesis 3, 15, promise of Messiah. Genesis 12, Abrahamic covenant. Uh, and, and, and then you've got Exodus. The Exodus, the giving of the law. And the big one for me, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The nature of God, I am gracious and compassionate. That is the theme that goes all the way through the scriptures. But you get it first in Exodus. Leviticus. Boy, there's a tough one. But there's some really interesting stuff there. And, and one of the things that uh, Mark Dever, I owe him a, a debt on this one, he did an excellent introduction, to, or, or summary, I should say, of the book uh, of uh, Leviticus. And he said, do you notice how much of Leviticus has sexual orientation, sexual, some sexual dimension? And he said this, remember, the Israelites were going to be in a Canaanite world where sexual immorality was a part of everything they did. And it's a way of raising a flag for God's people saying, you better, you better be careful. You better watch out. And by the way, if you read the book of Leviticus, you say to yourself, oh my goodness, how would a guy make it through the day? I mean, I'd have to stop every five minutes and make a sacrifice. What you find out is how, how horribly unclean we are. If we're thinking our works are going to get us there, read Leviticus, friends. But the pearl is Leviticus 16, Day of Atonement. It's there. Numbers. You've got uh, Kadesh Barnea, that turnaround point for the Israelites. One generation has to die. And you've got the uh, brazen serpent, which Jesus refers to in John chapter 3. Deuteronomy. Summary of all of Israel's history is laid out for us in Deuteronomy 28 through 31. There is a pearl, my friend, in every book of the Bible. Look for the pearls because they're there. All right. Boy, I'm getting close to winding up, almost on time. Here's here's another thing I got from Dr. Walkie. Does the New Testament ratify, modify, or he says abrogate, reject, the teaching of the Old Testament. So I was thinking about that. For instance, if you look at, at, at the New Testament, Jesus ratifies the two great commandments, doesn't he? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second, love your neighbor yourself. He ratifies those. Paul says if, if you're doing the things that are right, you fulfill that the Spirit leads you to, you're fulfilling the law. Modify. Now, you may want to quibble with me on this, but I'm thinking of the Sermon on the Mount. The Jewish mindset, at least, if, it, if he didn't modify the meaning and the intent of the Scriptures, he modified their interpretation of it. Because they're saying, well, uh, if a man does something against you, you know, you're not to kill him. And then it goes on to say, and be sure that you settle up with him before, because if you're angry in your heart, you have the seeds for murder. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 goes back and says, it says, you shall not commit adultery. But if you are thinking adulterous thoughts, you're, you're nearly there. And so he is extending that, I think, beyond what Judaism expected. So I would say, in my mind, he's modifying. And he's modifying in the sense of raising the standard even higher. You thought the law was bad the way it was? I mean, when you start talking about your thoughts being indictable, that's scary stuff. Look uh, for those uh, elements, ratify, modify, or abrogate. 
Next, what are the triangulating truths? We go, for instance, Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when it, you know he's old, he won't depart from it. One text. But there are triangulating texts which tell me I have to take more than that into consideration. So go back to Proverbs. Over and over again, you see the appeal made to the son. My son, listen to my commandments. Keep my commandments. Avoid this path. What's it saying? Yes, parents need to do this with the hope of this outcome. Children need to obey. It isn't one or the other. It's both. Triangulation. Hey, the place to see it best is in the temptation of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4. Satan quotes scripture. And he says, see, if you do what this scripture says, you'll jump off the pinnacle of the temple, you'll bow down and worship, you know, all these things. Jesus always comes back from Deuteronomy with a triangulating truth. You shall worship only the Lord your God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the Father. Look for other truths which help to qualify the truth of a particular text because they don't necessarily stand alone. Here's the last one that I really want to talk about for a minute or two. What are the guiding principles? My contention is that when God gave the law, he wasn't just giving a set of rules, uh, you know, that you have to keep or, or, or you get in all kinds of trouble. What he's doing is he's saying, here are things that tell you about me. Thou shalt not kill. I take it that God is a God who delights in life, not in the taking of life. And so you see behind those, and and the bad part about the rule makers is they never really get to the principle. So I was thinking about this with regard to the Sabbath. You want to do a little study, uh, this is probably a good one. You have the the, the rule keepers are saying to Jesus, Oh, your disciples broke the, the, the Sabbath. They're harvesting grain by plucking off some grain off the heads, off the, the grain in the field. Or, <laughs> I like this, there are six days in the week for you to heal, and you healed on the seventh. That's what they said. Jesus said, I will have compassion more than sacrifice. See, compassion is the guiding principle. And then he says, and you guys are hypocrites. You got an ox that goes in the ditch. You got a sheep that falls in a pit. You are in there pulling and tugging, Sabbath or not. And I'm not sure it was compassion that did it. <laughs> it was the prophet and law statement. But what he's saying is, you're hypocrites. He says, the priests do circumcision and they offer sacrifices. On the Sabbath, they break the Sabbath, technically. Because that's their job. David, he's, when they're talking about uh, eating and doing things on the Sabbath, he says, you remember David ate of the, of the sacred bread that was not his or his men's bread to take. Two factors. One, they were running for their lives from Saul. And two, who it was who got the bread. And, and what Jesus is saying is, David was king. If I were Abimelech the priest, I wouldn't tell him no either. And God didn't slap his hand. Because he was David. And Jesus said, I am the Messiah. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. But all all of this is to illustrate the point. You have to look at the law in the light of the guiding and governing principles that are behind it. Otherwise, you just become a rule-keeping legalist rather than to see the heart of God. We could go on, but let's just talk about parapets. Remember? In Deuteronomy 22, verse 8, this glass, John Marr put that glass in all the way around there. Didn't have to do it. Code let us leave it. We were scared to death some little kid would fall over that thing. So it's a parapet. It's a guardrail. And we need to be thinking in terms of safety, the safety of others. Do we not? And what might be a detriment to them? That's parapets. Don't muzzle the ox. Paul picks this one up. 
And he says, remember he's talking about the, 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 the responsibility of those who are ministered to, to, to share in his right to have an income, he and Barnabas. And, and he says, look at the principle. Don't muzzle the ox. The worker deserves remuneration for his, for his efforts. But then he says, God doesn't care about oxen, does he? What he's saying is, do you think the only reason why the command was given is to feed oxes? There was a principle behind it that was, that was taught in the, in the particular, but you're to see it in the broad. That's what Paul did. That's what Jesus did. That's what you and I need to do. When we start reading our particulars in light of principles, I think we're going to see a whole lot more and a a lot more application and relevance. So, a challenge to you, read the Bible, starting with the Old Testament. It's worth it. It is worth it. And for unbelievers, I'd say the same thing. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. I've heard story after story of people who've been saved that way. One guy who is now a preacher was an, a virtual atheist, and he went to a, a Bible class that a professor at, at Dallas Baptist University was teaching to a group of people, and, and he said, on Micah 5.2, and this is one more proof that the Bible is the inspired word of God. This guy raised his hands and any fool knows the Bible is full of errors. And the teacher said to him, well, name one. He said, how can I name one? I didn't. I never read the book. <laughs> so he got himself a Bible and hid it under his side of the bed. And after his wife went to sleep, he pulled it out, looking for errors, and came to faith. You'll find Jesus there. You'll find grace there you'll find all the wonderful things God has there. Read your Bible. Father, help us this year to be students of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.